News of the foreign agent investigation reached Isaiah Cannon in 1961. Fulbright's team investigated in 1962, rifling through Jewish agency filing cabinets and analyzing proprietary financial data. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee held hearings about Israeli foreign principles in May and August of 1963. The looming threats of the investigation forced the Jewish agency American section to file slightly more detailed declarations. The American section began revealing, but not itemizing, substantial payment flows to the American Zionist Council in the fall of 1962. Senate testimony and preliminary committee reports soon made their way into the public domain in 1963. But the fate of the American Zionist Council has always been something of a mystery. The relevant internal documents revealing a secret Department of Justice battle to force the American Zionist Council to register as a foreign agent were not released until June 10, 2008, in response to Freedom of Information Act filings. An analysis of the episode sheds light on why the U.S. Department of Justice has subsequently been extremely reticent to prosecute Israel lobby legal violations, even when the evidence of wrongdoing is simply overwhelming. The Internal Security Division of the U.S. Department of Justice quietly took action on a parallel track to the Senate. On October 31, 1962, Assistant Attorney General and Director of the Internal Security Division, J. Walter Yegley, 1909-1990, notified Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, 1925 to 1968, of a major enforcement move. Yegley's division was formally demanding FARA registration of the American Zionist Council. Yegley wrote, I think you ought to know that we're soliciting next week the registration of the American Zionist Council under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. In an amendment to a supplemental registration statement filed by the American section of the Jewish Agency for Israel for the period ending in March 31, 1962, it was reported that the Council received over $32,000 in subventions and over $11,000 as a special grant from the American section of the Jewish Agency for Israel. Under the Act, the receipt of such funds from the Jewish Agency constitutes the Council as an agent of a foreign principal, as that term is defined in Section 1C of the statute. The stated purpose for which these funds were received makes unavailable any exemption from registration. You may be aware that the American Zionist Council is composed of representatives of various Zionist organizations in the United States, including the Zionist Organization of America, Yegley wrote. Going after a group of powerful nonprofit corporations under the American Zionist Council umbrella, such as the Zionist Organization of America and Hadassah, was no trifling matter. John F. Kennedy had courted and won over key figures in the Israel lobby in his campaign for president. Although the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis was undoubtedly requiring most of the administration's attention, Robert F. Kennedy brought in Department of Justice Director for Public Information Edwin Guthman to review the strength of the case against the AZC and the exact approach the Ferris section chief would take. On November 14, 1962, Guthman sent his report to Robert F. Kennedy and copied it to Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach. Guthman, Yegley, and Nathan Lenvin in the Ferris section were confident about the likely response of the American Zionist Council and its constituent organizations. He wrote, 
I met with Walter Yegley and Nat Lenvin today in connection with the proposal to require the American Zionist Council to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Facts, as set forth in the attached memorandum from Yegley and Lenvin, should clearly reveal that the American Zionist Council has been receiving substantial amounts of money for two years or more from the American section of the Jewish Agency for Israel for the express purpose of disseminating propaganda about Israel's position in the Middle East. This money comes from funds raised in America through the United Jewish Appeal. Nat Lenvin proposes to write a letter to the American Zionist Council indicating that the Council should register. Undoubtedly, representatives of the Council will wish to confer with Nat. I believe Nat should go ahead and send the letter and handle this matter as any other registration. I doubt very much that there will be any fuss. I don't think the American Zionist Council is in any position to do so. If, as it appears, the Zionist Council was used for political propaganda purposes, money raised by the UJA in America, the Council has compromised its position. This UJA money is generally for charitable work in the United States and Israel. Disclosure that some of the money, even a small part, had been used for political propaganda could hurt the UJA fundraising. In the ensuing two-and-a-half-year battle, the Internal Security Division would obtain few direct material disclosures of the massive propaganda campaign funded by the Jewish Agency and document no specific international control relationships beyond the damning testimony and documents disclosed in Fulbright's Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearings. Understanding JFK's and Lyndon B. Johnson's revolving relationships with the Israel lobby and non-proliferation initiatives is critical for understanding the failure of the Department of Justice's extremely serious attempt to compel the Israel lobby's Foreign Agents Registration Act registration. Like Harry S. Truman, both John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson learned how to interface with Abraham Feinberg and his cadre of Israel lobby financiers. John F. Kennedy lamented the realities of the blatant and raw exchange of campaign money for policy control, while the more seasoned Lyndon Baines Johnson recognized the relationship as essentially unidirectional and non-negotiable. A decade earlier, Feinberg had elaborated on the power of the Israel lobby and its elite vision for how U.S. politics and regional policy should function. During a frank 1952 discussion when Adlai Stevenson, 1900 to 1965, was looking for support in his presidential run against Dwight Eisenhower, Feinberg briefed him on the realities of vote counting. Feinberg wrote, He finally did call me, and we met at the Biltmore Hotel. It must have been five or six weeks after the nomination, and obviously he was putting his best foot forward. He said, Abe... I know a lot about you and your interest in Israel. I said, fine, let's get to that right away. What can I do to tell you about the need for continued support of Israel? Well, he said, I first have to tell you of my problem. I was in Iran for the State Department in 1946 when the Russians made their move into Iran. It was I who activated the United States through the State Department to threaten to resist that move. That incident endeared me to the Arabs, and I have many friends in the Arab world, Adlai said. So I said, how many votes are there in the Democratic Party in the Arab world? That was the only thing I said, and he understood that I meant he was being impractical. A president should have friends in the Arab world. 
I think it would be very helpful for a president to have friends in the Arab world to whom he can talk, man to man, without being blackmailed with oil, and friends in Israel to whom he could talk, man to man, wrote Feinberg. Feinberg and his affiliated organizations could muster enough votes and campaign contributions to factor into practical Cold War considerations and purely realist U.S. interests in the region. Feinberg indeed lived long enough to see the beginning of an implementation of the neoconservative vision for the U.S. This vision advanced to include U.S. military control of Middle East oil supplies and further institutionalized and ever closer man-to-man U.S.-Israel ties championed by such figures as Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, and Douglas Fife. Abraham Feinberg met with John F. Kennedy through Connecticut Governor Abraham Ribicoff, 1910 to 1998, Kennedy's floor manager at the Democratic Convention. Ribicoff, also Isaiah Kennedy's confidant, arranged a meeting between Kennedy and Feinberg at the Hotel Pierre, where Feinberg lived. Feinberg invited about 20 prominent financiers and businessmen to the meeting. Kennedy was grilled about his father's controversial views on Jews in general and Adolf Hitler in particular. The next morning, Kennedy visited Charles L. Bartlett, a close friend and newspaper columnist, and blew off steam. Bartlett recalled Kennedy's anger. As an American citizen, he was outraged to have a Zionist group come to him and say, We know your campaign is in trouble. We're willing to pay your bills if you'll let us have control of your Middle East policy. They want to control, Kennedy told Bartlett. But after becoming president, Kennedy duly expressed gratitude to Feinberg and made several sensitive political appointments that appeased the Israel lobby. In October of 1961, Kennedy pardoned Hank Greenspun, caught smuggling military hardware to Israel and convicted of violating the Neutrality Act in 1950. Kennedy appointed Meyer Mike Feldman, a campaign aide, to be the presidential liaison for Jewish and Israeli affairs in the White House. One day after Kennedy's inauguration, Feldman was given authorization to monitor all secret U.S. State Department and White House cable traffic pertaining to the Middle East. This node created bureaucratic chaos as national security and State Department officials attempted to route sensitive information around Feldman. One U.S. ambassador insisted on sending his most sensitive reports directly to Kennedy. At the time, Feldman's and Feinberg's support for Israel's nuclear program was the polar opposite of Kennedy's nuclear nonproliferation treaty initiatives. Israel's nuclear program would prevail as the JFK administration came to a cataclysmic end. On November 21, 1962, J. Walter Yegley sent a two-page letter signed by Nathan B. Lenvin, chief of the registration section, and foreign agent registration forms to the American Zionist Council by certified mail. The letter cited the section's finding that because it received Jewish agency funds for propaganda purposes, the AZC had to register. The Jewish Agency American section received advance notice that such a request was imminent. On October 31, 1962, even as Yegley notified Robert F. Kennedy of the pending registration request, 
Maurice Bokstein, the Jewish Agency's New York legal counsel and architect of the 1960s Zionist reorganization, conferred with Lenvin about a potential AZC registration. According to Lenvin's files, Bokstein broke the ice with a topic he probably knew was of little interest to the Farah section before getting down to business at hand. Lenvin documented, On Wednesday, October 31, 1962, I conferred with Mr. Maurice Bokstein in regard to a problem you wish to discuss, which may involve the application of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Mr. Bokstein stated that the American section of the Jewish Agency was thinking of financing a number of academic grants for bar mitzvah girls and boys to study in Israel, with particular emphasis on Jewish culture and education. Question had been raised as to whether this grant, if made to the association handling the bar mitzvah grants, would be required to register. I expressed the view to Mr. Bokstein that, in my opinion, such activities would come within the purview of the exemption from registration provided by Section 3E of the statute and there would not be a requirement for registration. Bookstein then inquired about whether the recent and more detailed Jewish Agency American Section FARA disclosures would trigger any Department of Justice action. Lenvin stated that the matter was still under consideration, but then turned the question around and asked Bookstein whether the AZC would likely protest a FARA registration demand. Bookstein said the matter had already been discussed internally and outlined a possible strategy the AZC might tender to avoid registration. He also speculated about Robert F. Kennedy's likely reaction if the registration issue moved forward, laying groundwork through the term bona fide, which would resurface prominently as the DOJ finalized the case file in 1965. Mr. Bookstein replied that in his view it was doubtful that any great protest would be made, since in the discussions he has had with the various officials connected both with the Zionist Council and the Jewish Agency, he had made it clear that in his view an agency relationship would result which may well require registration. He hazarded a view that perhaps the most that would be sought would be a non-pressing by the Attorney General of any request for registration on the basis of bona fide representations from the Jewish Agency that the Jewish Agency no longer would contribute funds to the American Zionist Council. I did not express any opinion as to what action the department would or would not take in this regard, wrote Lenvin. J. Walter Yegley wrote in the margin of Lenvin's file memo that he would expect this same non-pressing of registration, but the magnitude of Jewish agency disbursements to the AZC was not yet known within the Department of Justice. When they were later disclosed in Fulbright's hearings, the Justice Department's insistence on registration became absolute. Rabbi Irving Miller of the American Zionist Council, in a December 6, 1962 letter to Lenvin, politely acknowledged receipt of the FARA registration forms, but contested the basis of the Justice Department's request. The request for registration contained in your letter raises various questions of facts and relationships, which first must be resolved by us before compliance can be made. Therefore, it is requested that you be good enough to grant us a delay of 120 days to consider these matters and take appropriate action. The American Zionist Council immediately hired Simon H. Rifkind, 1901-1995, of the powerhouse law firm Paul Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison, LLP, as its outside legal counsel to deal with the Department of Justice. Rifkind was a shrewd choice. 
Between 1941 and 1950, he had been a federal district court judge in New York City. In March of 1961, he was appointed chair of the Presidential Railroad Commission, having taken over from the Secretary of Labor, James P. Mitchell. Rifkin chaired the commission on behalf of President Kennedy until it terminated with the publication of its final report on February 28, 1962. He also continued to provide valuable political cover to John F. Kennedy over the fallout with railroad labor groups generated by the abolishment of their formerly sacred work rules. On March 5, 1962, Rifkin proclaimed to the news media that labor concessions were the only option for avoiding a moribund economy. On January 23, 1963, Rifkind, an unrecorded member of his law firm and two representatives of the American Zionist Council, sat down with Nathan Lenvin and his executive assistant, Thomas K. Hall, in what could have been an intimidating and contentious confrontation. Rifkin's opening gambit was in line with Bokstein and Yegley's initial expectations. He positioned himself as if he were above the fray and delivering a considered opinion from the bench. Judge Rifkin indicated he had carefully reviewed the facts and pertinent provisions of the Foreign Agents Registration Act and had concluded that while the situation is fraught with considerable doubt, he had advised his client to discontinue completely the agency relationship and cut off the receipt of any additional funds of this nature. This action, he stated, on the part of his client became effective on January 18. He stressed the fact that his client and its activities fall within the purview of the so-called educational or cultural exemption of the act. There were, however, certain activities, such as the dissemination of publications and the use of mass media, as to which it could conceivably be argued that they were non-exempt. In light of this, he deemed it advisable that his client terminate the relationship in its entirety, noted Lenvin. This we-didn't-do-it-and-certainly-won't-do-it-again stance, now fairly common in corporate crime investigations and non-prosecution agreements, didn't initially work out. Lenvin's meeting notes also record Rifkin's frank assessment that the Jewish agency funding cutoff would be an enormous financial sacrifice. In regard to the latter point, Judge Rifkin pointed out that rather than incur any possible obligation to register, the subject had arrived at a decision it would no longer accept any funds from the Jewish agency, and that it would attempt to continue its activities by raising its own funds within the United States, which would be a task of considerable difficulty. Rifkin's comment substantiates how weak Zionist fundraising, as opposed to general Jewish relief fundraising, continued to be in the United States at the time. It was this stability that necessitated the elaborate international financial conduits through Bokstein's various shell corporations. Senator Fulbright had referred to this often in the hearings as simply rigmarole. Lenvin wasn't sympathetic to the American Zionist Council's self-imposed penalty of future direct U.S. Zionist fundraising. He wouldn't back down before Rifkin. He indicated that the alleged termination of Jewish agency funding did not absolve the American Zionist Council of an obligation to retroactively register for the period when an agency relationship clearly existed and foreign subsidized activities were being carried out across the U.S. 
Rifkind objected on the grounds that the American Zionist Council would have carried on such activities anyway, without it should be noticed, explaining precisely how they would have been financed. Possibly realizing the inconsistency of that case and the dearth of direct funding, Rifkind then suddenly changed course and made an impassioned good versus evil plea for special treatment using violent, metaphorical language. It would not benefit the government at this time to obtain such a registration and the disclosure involved. That registration would place a noose around the neck of his client, a long-standing organization of excellent repute and importance to the national interest of the United States, and thus choke the very life out of it. That registration would furnish a weapon to anti-Zionist groups, a spokesman of which is alleged to have said he would pay half a million dollars to get AZC registered as a foreign agent. He further stated that he was not urging that we should not enforce the statute solely because of the disastrous consequences, but because it was a reasonable and permissible canon of construction to give it a meaning dispensing with registration by AZC and thus applying it in a manner that would do good rather than promote evil, noted Lendvin. Lenvin and Hall reasserted the Ferris section's position that the request for registration represented an official interpretation of the act, which was applied on an equal basis to all. They then suggested that Rifkin submit a brief to Yegley outlining his legal arguments, and Rifkin agreed. Conveniently for Rifkin, a news item drawing on this closely held information appeared the very next day. It was probably released by American Zionist Council insiders, titled, American Zionist Council Gives Up Dollars to Avoid Foreign Agent Registration. It appeared in the National Jewish Post. The clipping duly made its way to the Internal Security Division and was docketed in the FARA section files on April 8, 1963. Meanwhile, the American Council for Judaism was ecstatic. In a February 19, 1963 bulletin to members celebrating its own upcoming 20-year anniversary, the American Council for Judaism broke the Farah registration news and trumpeted the imminent fall of the American Zionist Council. The American Zionist Council, coordinating political action arm of all U.S. Zionist organizations, was asked last month by the Justice Department to register as a foreign agent of the State of Israel, they noted. On March 6, 1963... Tony Lewis of the New York Times telephoned the Ferris section seeking verification of the AZC registration order, but Lenvin, who normally handled inquiries from Lewis, was not available to receive the call. Edwin Guthman was still working out a communication strategy for dealing with such calls in the interim. On March 21, Nathan Lenvin received a cover letter individually signed by each partner of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, and a brief outlining why the American Zionist Council should not be complied to register under FARA. Another face-to-face -face meeting was called. On April 1, 1963, Hall and Lenvin met with Rifkin and other members of his firm at their 575 Madison Avenue law office in New York City. Lenvin stated that based on the Jewish agency FARA registration, the facts did not bear out the firm's objections to AZC registration based on claims that it was no longer an agent of a foreign principal or that the material disseminated was only educational in nature. Lenvin said he believed there was an inherent agency relationship created by the funding flows and communications and bluntly stated that he would recommend litigation over the matter. 
The meeting ended with Lenvin promising to deliver reproductions of the relevant Jewish Agency American Section Pharaoh registration documents to Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. For its part, the American Zionist Council promised to produce copies of its informational materials to prove its contention that only exempt cultural material was ever disseminated. Lenvin had clearly rattled the law firm. Yegley, meanwhile, wanted the entire matter concluded and wrote a memo to Hall on April 5, 1963, asking if the relevant Jewish agency Farah registration disclosure had been sent to the American Zionist Council's legal counsel. But the matter was far from concluded, and the clock was ticking toward the Senate hearing. Rifkin abruptly escalated his appeal directly to Yegley's boss. On May 2, 1963, only two weeks before Fulbright's first formal Senate hearings on the agents of Israeli foreign principles, Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach, J. Walter Yegley, and Nathan B. Lenvin met at the New York City offices of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison for a major dressing down by Rifkin, composed of blanket denials, accusations, appeals for clemency, and raw political calculations. The Farah matter simply had to be shut down. Lenvin detailed the meeting in a three-page internal file reviewed and verified by both Yegley and Katzenbach. He wrote, Judge Rifkin opened the discussion by explaining to Mr. Katzenbach something of the nature of the composition and activities of the American Zionist Council. He explained that the council is composed of representatives of various Zionist organizations in the United States, and that it thereby, in effect, represents the vast majority of organized Jewry within this country. He also mentioned the existence of the American Council for Judaism, which is an anti-Zionist organization, and briefly touched on the conflict which exists between Zionist groups and the American Council for Judaism. He placed particular stress on the proposition that for the department to insist upon the registration of the council would do it incalculable harm without any corresponding benefit to the government. He touched briefly on the points raised in the brief previously submitted by his law firm in support of the argument that the council was not under an obligation to register. He stated that Regardless of what technical agency relationship may have resulted as a consequence of the subventions received by the Council from the American section of the Jewish Agency for Israel, nevertheless, this agency relationship had now been terminated since the Council had arrived at a decision that it would not incur any vestige of possible obligation to register by cutting off all funds from the American section and that it would continue its program through the raising of funds from domestic sources. Judge Rifkin went on to state that even though an agency relationship may have been created by the receipt of funds, the general overall program of the council was such that it would come within the purview of the cultural exemption from registration as contained in Section 3E of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and even though the Council did disseminate some publications, which conceivably, through a broad interpretation of the definition of political propaganda, would fall within that category, Judge Rifkin stressed the fact that these activities were a very minor portion of the entire program for which funds received from the Jewish agency were utilized. He emphasized that the Council used most of these funds for Hebrew education, 
youth movements, charitable purposes, and other cultural activities related to the Jewish people. Finally, Judge Rifkin raised the point, after emphasizing the disparity of numbers between the American Council for Judaism and the American Zionist Council, that the vast number of Jews who adhered to the principles of Zionism could not understand how our administration could do such harm to the Zionist movement and impair the effectiveness of the council by insistence on registration. He appealed to the discretionary power of the department, which he claims it has in all criminal cases, by stating that the department generally makes a judgment as to which cases it will pursue and which it will not, pointing out in this connection that not all traffic violators, for instance, are given tickets but that other circumstances must be taken into consideration. Mr. Katzenbach replied to this observation that it was a matter of proper administration of justice to use discretion and judgment in the exercise of prosecutive powers, but that he wanted to make the point to Judge Rifkin that the laws of the United States were not only to be enforced against Republicans, but were to be enforced impartially. After Judge Rifkin completed his outline of his position, and in this connection, it is noted that he did not go into any detail as to the controlling of facts upon which the request for registration was based. Mr. Lenvin outlined for Mr. Katzenbach's benefit the principal facts upon which the request for registration was predicated, noted the file. Deputy Attorney General Katzenbach then offered a very clever, but ultimately fatal, accommodation to Rifkind, additional disclosure from the American Zionist Council in exchange for Department of Justice reconsideration of the entire FARA registration order. London noted, After hearing these facts, Mr. Katzenbach asked Mr. Rifkin whether the receipt of the funds from the American section of the Jewish agency was considered to be confidential and the reply was negative. Mr. Katzenbach then asked whether information as to how those funds were expended was considered to be of a confidential nature. And again, Judge Rifkin replied in the negative. Mr. Katzenbach then noted that if the council made a full disclosure of the receipt and expenditure of funds it received from the Jewish agency, so that such information would then be available for public inspection, the purposes and objectives of the Registration Act might well be accomplished. And very likely, there would be nothing further for the government to do. Mr. Katzenbach made it clear that he was not at this time committing the department to accepting this procedure, but that we would examine the material filed by the council before reaching a decision. In the event this was the eventual solution, it should be understood that the information submitted would be a matter of public record, the same as a registration statement filed under the Act. Judge Rifkin indicated the council quite likely would submit all of the information to the department, noted London. As the true volume of Jewish agency payments was registered in the Senate record in 1963, Rifkind and the AZC would alternately delay, reinterpret, flood the section with irrelevant data, and ruthlessly exploit this Katzenbach concession to avoid filing the requested information. This lasted until the cover provided by the John F. Kennedy administration was suddenly and violently destroyed forever. The battle was soon joined at the grassroots level as constituents across the United States entered the fray. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and the Congress were bombarded with outraged constituent letters and telegrams 
after the first major media confirmation that the Department of Justice was working on a American Zionist Council Foreign Agents Registration Act registration. This appeared in a curious Wall Street Journal article on June 28, 1963, which read, Federal lawyers near decision on whether to require the American Zionist Council to register as an agent of the Israeli government. High Justice Department officials weigh the risk of offending Jewish opinion in the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Chairman Fulbright also eyes the Council's activities, it noted. The article had no byline and subtly echoed the threat Rifkin explicitly made to Katzenbach in early May. It produced an immediate flurry of public outrage. Among the first of many protests to arrive on RFK's desk was a letter from L. Edward Tonkin of the Dallas, Texas-based Tonkin Millinery Company. The letter read, As an American of Jewish faith, I feel a deep affinity religiously with people of my faith in Israel and elsewhere in the world. However, I could not, in keeping with my loyalty to my country, the United States, countenance our Justice Department's failure to enforce the law against any one person or organized group of persons simply because of religious belief and the grossly misinterpreted mythical concept in this insistence of such a thing as a Jewish vote. However, if the highly organized, well-financed, and pressure force of the satellites of the Israeli government in this country, under many names and guises, has convinced our present government that there is such a thing as a Jewish vote, which they assert exists in strategically large electoral vote areas in the East and California, I am hopeful an honest government with honest officials fulfilling the complete oath of their office will not succumb to such pressures and will enforce the law of the land, Tonkin wrote. The record reveals that Tonkin's hopes were initially well-placed. But Tonkin was prescient in seeing that resisting years of grinding pressure from all sides would be the Department of Justice's true challenge. Only one official would survive the onslaught. The sentiments expressed in copies of other letters and telegrams filed at the Internal Security Division were similar. To Senator Ralph Yarborough, Urge your influence to ensure fairer decision not be determined on religious or political grounds. From Marjorie and Raymond Arsht to Senator Douglas and Robert F. Kennedy. You would do grave injustice to 5 million American Jews should you make any decision affecting the welfare of our country in order to risk offending a supposed Jewish opinion, Jane Dreyfus. To Robert F. Kennedy, I'm unaware of any provisions in the statutes of such a criterion for this legal determination of facts. I'm also unaware of any provision in the fabric of American national political life for the necessity to consider the opinion of any so-called national minority group in the formulation of policy decisions affecting the national security. Richard L. Hoffman. Robert F. Kennedy. As a Jew, I urge decision based on legal considerations only. I doubt that most Jews support Zionism, and none would oppose complying with U.S. laws. Resident of Highland Park, Illinois. Letter to RFK. We wish to practice our religion of Judaism without any involvement with the political subsidiary of any foreign state. Therefore, we urge you as Attorney General to look seriously at the American Zionist Council for political involvement with the State of Israel and thus necessitating it to register as a foreign agent. Mr. and Mrs. Harvey Lanero. 
Illinois Congressman and future Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld also wrote to RFK about the marked influx of constituent concerns over the Wall Street Journal article. Rumsfeld asked that RFK report as to the policy of the Department of Justice will follow in determining this question. The letters and requests for responses from members of Congress continued to flow in through late summer of 1963. If there were any constituents lobbying for the Department of Justice to consider political calculations in its law enforcement process, they were clearly using other avenues and representatives. No letters making an opposing argument appear within the FARA section file. Meanwhile, Adrian W. DeWind and another lawyer from Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison submitted a stack of publications and letters to Nathan Lenvin on June 28, 1963. When Lenvin asked whether the submission included papers in compliance with the Rifkin-Katzenbach agreement, including receipts and expenditures, DeWind indicated he had not attended the meeting, but did not think the papers delivered included expenditures. Lenvin briefed DeWind on what he understood were the terms of the Katzenbach concessions before leaving. Lenvin noted, we would examine the submitted publications, and if it was decided that the exemption from registration was not available, the department would insist that the receipts and expenditures of the council be furnished for public inspection. It was understood in the meantime that records regarding receipts and expenditures would be made available to the department, he wrote. Lenvin's interpretation clearly provided no motivation for the AZC to risk delivery of highly sensitive public relations and lobbying disclosures under the agreement these could later be made public by the department. Yegley's handwritten notes on the file outlined a possible special registration deal for the American Zionist Council. It was my understanding they were to give us, in effect, a full disclosure, but not on a registration form, Yegley wrote. On July 17, 1963, Nancy Farnkopf filed an internal content analysis memorandum to Nathan Lenvin. She first outlined the corporate objectives of the AZC to create and maintain a climate of opinion favorable to Israel through the efforts of the Department of Information and Public Relations, and reviewed approximately 40 samples of literature delivered by DeWind. She found that, quote, a substantial portion of this material contains support for specific domestic and foreign policies of the Israeli government. Unquote, and that memos of the local Zionist chairman and community leaders included reprints of favorable articles, instructions for countering unfavorable articles, recommendations of books and articles, comments on the Syrian-Israel crisis, etc. Farnkopf's summary was conclusive. The bulk of the materials and programs offered by the various departments of the AZC are intended to promote a favorable attitude toward Israel and that the Department of Information and Public Relations is clearly the most political of its activities. Farnkopf concluded an extensive distribution list from Rabbi Jerome Unger, dated August 27, 1962, outlining public relations market channel segmentation, segment size, and materials to be distributed. Yegley telephoned Rifkin on July 17, 1963, about the absence of itemized financial information in the DeWind submission. Rifkin claimed to be embarrassed that the AZC had not delivered any information on receipts and expenditures and said he understood from DeWind that everything had been settled. 
He promised to get back to Yegley right away. On July 22nd, Yegley also responded to Donald Rumsfeld. He confirmed that the American Zionist Council Farah registration matter was under consideration, but clarified that the Wall Street Journal article was not an accurate representation of the way the Department of Justice did business. He wrote to Rumsfeld, You may wish to advise your constituents that the implications they found in the Wall Street Journal article represent neither the views nor policies of the Department of Justice. The question of whether the American Zionist Council should be required to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act is presently under consideration by this department. I'm sure that your constituents will be interested in knowing that our ultimate determination will be based on the law as applied to the facts in this particular case and not on any consideration of its effect on the public opinion of the Jewish community in the United States, he wrote. Senator Fulbright's second hearing on the Jewish agency was scheduled for August 2, 1963. On Friday, July 18 at noon, Nathaniel S. Rothenberg, representing the American Zionist Council, was logged telephoning Nathan Lenvin at the Ferris section. He advised Lenvin that Mr. Bick, the treasurer of the American Zionist Council, was out of town for two weeks. The controller was hospitalized due to a heart attack. Rothenberg requested a two-week extension for the submission of the registration statement data. Lenvin replied that he would discuss it with Yegley, but that the registration was expected not later than the first week or so in August. Rothenberg asked how detailed the statement should be, and Lenvin replied that the statement should be detailed and complete in every respect. Rothenberg said he wanted to stress that we are working on it, and ended the call. By July 30, on the eve of the Senate hearings, Katzenbach wrote to Yegley that Rifkin should be needled, but much depends on Fulbright, too. On August 14, 1963, the Ferris section had received nothing from the American Zionist Council, but was immersed in digesting the deluge of highly incriminating information from testimony and documents divulged in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearings. Yegley asked Thomas K. Hall for an update. Mr. Hall, is it time to write Rifkind or send a memo to AG or send in the FBI? He scrawled. Hall wrote a derisive internal memo to Lenvin about the American Zionist Council's filing status. Judge Rifkin has had ample time to respond to our request for information in this matter. It appears to me that, as in the past, he's stalling hoping that time will resolve the difficulties faced by the American Zionist Council. Immediate action, in my opinion, is necessary. We should go on record with the AG, copy to the deputy, outlining the posture of this matter and indicate the need for more drastic action. Yegley ordered Nathan Lenvin to prepare another memo on the matter. On August 16, 1963, Rabbi Jerome Unger sent Lenvin two reports of income and expenditures, which Irene Bowman of the Internal Security Section rejected as inadequate in light of the newly public information received from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. On August 20, 1963, Lenvin responded with an internal memo to Yegley outlining how the records of the May and August Fulbright hearings had disclosed a much broader and deeper array of American Zionist Council activities than the Ferris section was previously aware of. Lenvin wrote, This testimony reveals that the Council's actions have been much more widespread in the propaganda area than was heretofore realized or disclosed. 
during the course of our meetings with counsel for and representatives of the American Zionist Council. While some of the activity of the council may well fall within the educational or cultural exemption from registration, it is clear that the principal objective of the council is to create by means of propaganda and other devices a favorable picture of the state of Israel and the Zionist movement. In addition, despite the disclaimers of representatives of the Jewish agency, that the agency is separate and distinct from the state, it is also clear that there is a close affinity between the two. Consequently, it appears to me that there is no alternative but to require the American Zionist Council to do no less than file a full and complete registration statement and to make a public disclosure to a registration statement of his activities on behalf of the Jewish Agency, Jerusalem, and or American section of the Jewish Agency. There is an attached hereto a proposed letter to Judge Rifkin implementing this recommendation. This close affinity mentioned by Lenvin, would later provide grounds for a direct Department of Justice challenge to the Jewish Agency American section. George Washington University law professor W.T. Mallison, Jr. and Rabbi Elmer Berger of the American Council for Judaism would ask the Department of Justice to force the American section to disclose its true agency relationship with the Israeli government. It would ultimately do so, but not for almost another decade after Lenvin was dead. On August 22, Yegley forwarded the Lenvin memo and an American Zionist Council material and hearings analysis to Deputy A.G. Katzenbach, suggesting that a letter to the American Zionist Council be copied to Rifkind, demanding a complete public AZC registration statement. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had asked Yegley on August 14 whether he needed the Bureau's assistance regarding the American Zionist Council matter. Yegley responded, This is to advise you that the registration of the American Zionist Council was originally solicited by letter, dated November 21, 1962, as a result of disclosures made in the registration statement filed by the American section of the Jewish Agency for Israel, pending a determination as to whether a further letter should be written insisting on registration. No investigation will be required. You will be kept advised of developments in this matter, he wrote to the FBI director. On October 9, 1963, Nathan Lenvin and Irene Bowman from the Ferris section met once again with Rifkind in the firm's offices. Lenvin advised Rifkind that Nicholas Katzenbach was in agreement. Due to new facts emerging from the Fulbright hearings, the department must insist that the AZC file a complete FARA registration statement using official forms immediately. The Katzenbach concession was canceled. Lenvin also suggested that Rifkin could file a statement indicating the registration was made under protest, if he so desired. Rifkin asked Lenvin what exactly had arisen in the hearings that had not previously been disclosed. Lundvin cited a Jewish agency payment to the American Zionist Council of $197,500, another for $712,000, and a $100,000 American Zionist Council loan taken at Bank Laumi and left on the American Zionist Council's books. Repayment was guaranteed by the Jewish agency. He also discussed the American Zionist Council's propaganda activities in Cultivation of Editors 
letters to editors, and approaches to Capitol Hill. Lenvin summed it up by stating that since the American section of the Jewish agency was itself just a conduit, the American Zionist Council should name the Jewish agency in Jerusalem as its true foreign principle. He also rejected the summary report submitted by the American Zionist Council on August 16, 1963 as bald statements that had precluded any previously discussed exemptions to registration tendered by Katzenbach. Rifkin asked if there were any special registration forms, and Yegley responded affirmatively. Rifkin said he believed the statement should be filed as to the date of dissolution of the AZC, January 1963. On October 10, 1963, Yegley and Lenvin sent a terse one-page letter to Rifkin, again including fair registration forms, insisting on a response within 72 hours. Four days later, the American Zionist Council had still not complied with the deadline, but instead called for another meeting. Yegley detailed this summit between Katzenbach, Rifkind, and DeWind, at which Simon Rifkind was apoplectic. Judge Rifkind then made the plea for no registration, stating that it was the opinion of most of the persons affiliated with the American Zionist Council that such registration would be so publicized by the American Council for Judaism, that it would eventually destroy the Zionist movement. Mr. DeWind thought that there were no differences between its situation and a hypothetical situation such as the NAACP receiving grants from some group in England, but continuing its same program and functions. Katzenbeck held his ground and told Rifkin that he did not have any discretion in the case, and that it it seemed clear to the government that the council came squarely within the provisions of the act and would have to register. Rifkin countered that he thought requirements could be covered by filing materials amounting to disclosure, but Yegley replied that materials submitted so far by the AZC had not been relevant. Rifkin claimed he had already consulted with the American Zionist Council member organizations and believed they could supply all of the information required of the average registrant, but he did not believe his clients would file any papers indicating that the organization was the agent of a foreign principal. The Ferris section was pressing a very strong case against the AZC. It had compiled documentary evidence of agency through the Fulbright hearings. With Rifkin now talking about the dissolution of the AZC, it seemed as though a transparent, publicly disclosed FARA disclosure of relationships and activities, however historical it might be, was finally at hand. Pharaoh was also being reinvigorated with new resources after years of institutional malaise, falling registrations, and declining prosecutions. This was due to the efforts of Senator Fulbright and the Foreign Relations Committee during preliminary 1962 reports with their warranted criticism of the Department of Justice and U.S. State Department's implementations of Pharaoh. Both played major roles in restoring Pharaoh enforcement for a time. But events favored Rifkind. The unity of purpose of the Department of Justice under Robert F. Kennedy was about to be shattered by a cataclysm that would forever shift the advantage back to the AZC. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, less than one month in the future. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee's damning report alleged that Farah was enforced only sporadically and selectively. It was usually directed at members of communist countries, 
The report depicted foreign agents for a vast array of other countries, most of them U.S. citizens, as free to propagandize and lobby without disclosure of activities. The report said, With the growth of foreign government representation in the public relations field, the amount of disguised political propaganda disseminated has greatly increased, though the Act contemplated control of just this type of activity through its labeling provisions. These particular provisions have been all but erased from the law books through non-application. The initial report cited registration statements with obvious omissions or verifiable evasions, suggesting that the Justice Department was not devoting sufficient resources to monitoring registrations, policing, and enforcing FARA. The report's citation of the Department of Justice's own statistics seemed to support charges that FARA enforcement had largely stalled. In the first six years of the Act, 19 indictments were brought, with 18 convictions. Between 1945 and 1955, only two indictments were lodged, and only nine between 1955 and 1962. Most damning, according to the report, was that since 1945, all cases were for failure to register rather than failure to list all activities, expenses, and other required data. The report said... The requirement for full and accurate completion of the various forms has only sporadically been enforced by the Justice Department. The Department of Justice was also failing to be proactive about keeping the U.S. State Department in the loop about foreign agents' activities, according to the report, which said, In almost every case, the initial statement becomes the first and last time that state receives official information on a registered agent and his activities. Six-month supplemental statements, dissemination reports, and any additional short-form statements are normally not circulated to the State Department. A Justice Department spokesperson countered that there was some cooperation with the State Department and indicated that they could provide more information on a regular basis if desired. The Senate report, meanwhile, mandated a further inquiry into the five categories of foreign agents investigated by the committee. Lawyers who handle everything from purchasing an embassy, lobbying a bill through Congress, drawing up a peace treaty, and supervising public relations activities. Public relations men who, through the mass media, try to establish the United States public image desired by their client country. Economic consultants, whose activities range from drawing up development plans for their client countries to helping promote the United States government loans that put such plans in operation. Purchasing agents, who for their foreign clients deal in anything from light machinery to heavy armaments. Influence peddlers, who because of their Washington contacts are hired to advance their foreign clients' interests at the highest and lowest levels of the United States government. By early February 1963, the Department of Justice announced that 16 additional lawyers were being put to work reviewing active foreign agent files, just as the Senate Foreign Relations Committee began holding hearings. The Department of Justice reviewed 510 paid agents for foreign principals, and additional information was requested of 70 more. 22 were asked for additional details of expenditures. Other inquiries pertain to proper labeling of foreign government propaganda circulated in the U.S. 
Although he had already privately agreed to force the AZC to register as a foreign agent, Deputy Attorney General Nicholas E.B. Katzenbach publicly agonized during the hearings over the political consequences of going after the nation's elites. He said, I think this committee can appreciate the problems involved for indicting, for example, a prominent attorney or a prominent public relations firm for a failure to report expenditures in great detail where the expenditures were for entirely legitimate activities. Committee Chair J.W. Fulbright responded that the committee felt that Americans acting as foreign agents had done things inimical to the interests of our government and that both the U.S. State Department and Department of Justice had been very casual in enforcement and compliance. Senator Bork B. Hickenlooper concurred in particular with investigating whether foreign aid money was being cycled back to U.S. agents to lobby in behalf of more foreign aid. Fulbright was clearly thinking about Israel's U.S. lobby and the activities of Isaiah L. Kennan, the ballooning demands for aid, and opaque foreign financial flows. But as the Senate Foreign Relations Committee went on to subpoena witnesses in 1963, a case against a foreign agent for the Dominican Republic was also slowly and painfully unwinding. It verified Katzenbach's intuitions about how politically explosive, even seemingly straightforward, FARA prosecutions could become as they unraveled hidden webs connecting elite members of the U.S. press corps, public relations firms, and politicians, including the president. President John F. Kennedy faced his own minor FARA-related trouble, compliments of the First Lady's courtier, just as Fulbright's Senate Foreign Relations Committee issued an initial foreign agent's report in 1962. In 1960, the Eisenhower administration had severed diplomatic relations with the Dominican Republic, which was still ruled by the aging dictator Rafael Trujillo, 1891-1961. The Organization of American States found that Trujillo agents had tried to assassinate the president of Venezuela. Between 1960 and 1961, the loss of preferential sugar exports to the U.S. cost the Dominican Republic almost $28 million per year. Until his own assassination in May of 1961, Trujillo labored mightily to restore ties through public relations, diplomacy, and lobbying in Washington. The succeeding Dominican Republic government attempted to exploit a Cuban gambit by convincing the Kennedy administration of the threat of a potential Castro-type revolution with Soviet backing in the Dominican Republic. Igor Cassini, an elite society columnist for Hearst, whose column was syndicated worldwide in 150 newspapers, claimed credit for inventing the popular term jet set. He picked Jacqueline Beauvoir, the future First Lady Kennedy, as debutante of the year in 1948. His younger brother, Oleg Cassini, was a fashion designer and became her official fashion designer when she became First Lady. Igor Cassini started the public relations firm Marshall & Company in the late 1950s. He leveraged his friendship with Porfirio Rubirosa, a fellow jet setter, in charge of inspecting Dominican embassies, into three six-figure public relations contracts for a related firm domiciled in Zurich, Switzerland. Cassini then parlayed the threat of overthrow to President Kennedy to win approval for official secret mission to Santo Domingo toward restoration of trade and diplomatic ties. 
Subsequent political turbulence in Santo Domingo led to the public release of Cassini's lobbying contracts. The Kennedy administration denied knowledge of Cassini's lobbying ties. In 1963, Cassini pled no contest to charges of violating FARA, which saved the administration further embarrassment. Cassini also paid a $10,000 fine for failing to register and was sentenced to six months probation. He subsequently lost his job at Hearst and most of his public relations clients. He then lost his wife to an overdose of sleeping pills. Farrow violations could deliver harsh consequences. Kennedy had bigger worries than tawdry scandals surrounding the Dominican Republic, namely the Cold War and countering nuclear proliferation. Israel suddenly loomed large on the second front. When the existence of Israel's secret nuclear reactor abruptly became public, Isaiah Cannon carefully broadcast the Israeli government line that the Demona nuclear reactor was being built for research and peaceful purposes in his January 2, 1961 issue of the Near East Report. New reactor. Israel is building a nuclear reactor high in the frontier town of Demona, east of ancient Beersheba and overlooking the southern tip of the Dead Sea. The French are assisting in the project, which will be completed in three or four years. Mr. Ben-Gurion denied published rumors that Israel intended to produce an atomic bomb. Ambassador Abraham Harman informed the Department of State that Israel would welcome visits by students and scientists of friendly countries when the reactor is completed to demonstrate its peaceful character. Reports of Israel's new reactor created a furor and temporary U.S.-Israel rift because of the secrecy which attended them. Israel government spokesmen then denied that they could or intended to produce the bomb and gave that assurance to Secretary of State Christian A. Herder upon his return from a NATO conference. But U.S. officials were vexed because they had not been kept informed, wrote Kennan. When reporting on particularly sensitive matters, such as the Israeli nuclear weapons project, Kennan carefully selected and highlighted clips from mainstream U.S. news sources that downplayed the issues or supported the Israeli government's line on them. Kennan's work with the American Zionist Council, cultivating a cadre of PR professionals and opinion columnists, often paid off in such moments of crisis, when he would print exonerating quotes from outside experts, and reliable sources in the Mideast report. One Mideast report clip read, No bombs possible. Meanwhile, many asked whether the Israel reactor could really produce sufficient plutonium, a nuclear weapon component, to construct a bomb. Science editor William L. Lawrence of the New York Times deflated these reports on December 25 when he wrote that the plutonium produced in a small nuclear reactor of 24,000 thermal kilowatts is very minute indeed and completely useless for bomb material. The basic facts, if fully understood, would make it clear why only the great industrial nations, particularly the United States and Soviet Russia, can be full-fledged members of the Atomic Club. Kennan's fellow travelers at the venerable business magazine Barron's also managed to get off a broadside at the State Department about Demona, which Kennan then reprinted in the Near East Report. Against this background, observers ask why a non-military reactor caused such a violent explosion in Washington. 
Barron's, the Business Weekly, caustically commented on December 26, quote, the U.S. State Department once more placed itself in a ridiculous posture by accusing Israel of conspiring to build atomic weapons. The project was a subject of common gossip in the coffee houses of Tel Aviv, where American diplomats venture. Unquote. The U.S. administration's firm internal consensus was that the facility would indeed be used to produce nuclear weapons. President Kennedy privately sent a top-secret ultimatum to the new Israeli prime minister through American Ambassador Walworth Barber about U.S. concerns over Demona on July 5 of 1963. Kennedy demanded that Israeli Prime Minister Levi Eshkol submit to periodic U.S. inspections of the facility to verify claims that it was only for research. He wrote, It gives me great personal pleasure to extend congratulations as you assume your responsibilities as Prime Minister of Israel. You have our friendship and best wishes in your new tasks. It is on one of these that I am writing you at this time. As you are aware, I am sure, of the exchange which I had with Prime Minister Ben-Gurion concerning American visits to Israel's nuclear facility at Dimona. Most recently, the Prime Minister wrote to me on May 27. His words reflected a most intense personal consideration of a problem that I know is not easy for your government, as it is not for mine. We welcome the former Prime Minister's strong reaffirmation that Demona will be devoted exclusively to peaceful purposes, and the reaffirmation also of Israel's willingness to permit periodic visits to Demona. I regret having to add to your burden so soon after your assumption of office, but I feel the crucial importance of this problem necessitates my taking up with you at this early date certain further considerations arising out of Mr. Ben-Gurion's May 27 letter as to the nature and scheduling of such visits. I'm sure you will agree that these visits should be as nearly as possible in accord with international standards thereby resolving all doubts as to the peaceful intent of the Demona project. As I wrote, Mr. Ben-Gurion, this government's commitment to and support of Israel could be seriously jeopardized if it should be thought that we are unable to obtain reliable information on a subject as vital to the peace as a question of Israel's effort in the nuclear field. Therefore, I asked our scientists to review the alternative schedules of visits we and you had promised. If Israel's purposes are to be clear beyond a reasonable doubt, I believe that the schedule which would best serve our common purposes would be a visit early this summer, another visit in June 1964, and thereafter at intervals of six months. I'm sure that such a schedule would not cause you any more difficulty than that which Mr. Ben-Gurion proposed in his May 27 letter. It would be essential, and I understand that Mr. Ben-Gurion's letter was in accord with this, that our scientists have access to all areas of the Demona site and to any related part of the complex, such as fuel fabrication facilities or plutonium separation plant, and that sufficient time be allotted for a thorough examination. Knowing that you would fully appreciate the truly vital significance of this matter to the future well-being of Israel, to the United States, and internationally, I am sure our carefully considered will have your most sympathetic attention, he wrote. JFK's administration was later proven correct in believing that Demona was a nuclear weapons facility. 
Disclosures by Israeli whistleblower Mordecai Venunu revealed that the reactor would ultimately be configured and cooled to operate at 120 to 150 megawatts, capable of producing enough enriched materials for up to 12 nuclear bombs per year. In March of 1968, the Mossad surreptitiously acquired 24 tons of uranium ore from West Germany, ostensibly bound for an Italian company, but illicitly diverted by sea to Israel. By 1969, Israel had quietly emerged as a full-blown nuclear power. In 1979, the Israelis even tested a low-yield nuclear artillery shell, which was detected by an American spy satellite despite the cloudy conditions. But not until 2008 would a former U.S. president publicly confirm for the first time that Israel had developed an arsenal of 150 nuclear weapons. Kennedy's insistence on international inspections of Dimona and his evolving position on Palestinian refugees had him falling out of favor with Kennan's lobby late in 1963. He joined Senator Fulbright in vocal criticism of the Israeli prerogatives constantly being written into foreign aid bills at the urging of AIPAC. Kennan's November 19, 1963 Near East report alerted the lobby to Kennedy's sudden and dramatic reversal under the shrill banner, President Kennedy opposed, Kennan wrote. At his November 14 press conference, President Kennedy criticized Congress for denying the foreign aid funds he requested and for putting restrictions on their expenditure. He did not think the language of the anti-aggression amendment, which required him to make an extremely complicated finding, strengthens our hands or our flexibility in dealing with the UAR. In fact, it will have the opposite effect, he declared. He described the Arab countries as nationalist, proud, and, in many cases, radical. Threatened with suspension of aid, they would be tempted to say, cut it off. President Kennedy did not think that threats from Capitol Hill produced hopeful results. He said that cutting off the Aswan project had not brought the UAR to follow us. Kennedy was assassinated one week later. Kennan's next issue of the Near East Report briefly mourned JFK's passing before moving on to the business at hand. The Department of Justice subsequently lost all of the political cover necessary to force the Israel lobby to register under Farah. Farah. 